All right, uh, go ahead and pull out your Bibles. Uh, we'll be back in the book of Colossians this morning. If you want to use the Pew Bible, we'll be on page 984 now. And also, happy Martin Luther King Day tomorrow. That's cool. I was listening to KEXP this morning. How many of you listen to KEXP? It's like a local station that plays indie stuff. But anyway, they were playing Martin Luther King's speech from the March on Washington. I was like, wow, this is awesome. I love how, um, how our culture has revered him. And of course, a lot of people revere him and kind of leave aside some of the things he says, both right and left. Um, but I love how Martin Luther King was all about not just the king, Jesus, but also the kingdom of Jesus, and, and how as believers we are to be about both. We're not just to be about the kingdom, you know, making sure all the areas of society reflect the values of the king, but we're to be about the king. Uh, and Martin Luther King exemplified that really well, so happy Martin Luther King Day. Um, but we'll be in Colossians uh, this morning. We're back uh, it's been a couple months off, but I'm really glad to be back in Colossians. Uh, it's one of, I don't know, it's just, it packs a punch. It's like taking a truth shower. If you read it through, it takes only like 12 minutes. But if you're ever in a place where you're feeling like you're believing things about God that aren't true, or you're believing things about yourself that aren't true, here's the challenge. Read Colossians, and you will not come out the same on the other side. It's like jumping into a cold shower of truth. It's awesome. So go ahead and find Colossians chapter 3. Take a stand, uh, and we'll take a look at it together. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Go ahead and just follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. You can stay standing while we pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the bright, sunny morning. Thank you for Mount Rainier that is just out. It's so beautiful. Uh, just this beautiful world that you've created for us, God, and given to us to steward and to bless us with. Father God, as we sit here semi warm uh, out of the elements, um, help us to be able to focus on you to focus on what you want to speak to us and by your spirit, by your word, to change us, uh, to break down walls that we have up to you and uh, move us a little bit further towards Jesus this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So yeah, Colossians is really all about God's truth about you in Christ. We titled this series in Colossians, Jesus Plus Nothing. 
And that's really what this book is all about. We'll be in Colossians for the next couple months, so I just want to catch you back up to where we've been for the last couple of chapters. So last time we were in this letter written by Paul from Rome around 60 AD. It was uh, mid-November, so it's been a couple of months. And at the time, we finished out chapter 2 when we took as deep a dive as we could into basically the reason why Paul was writing this letter. You know, what was plaguing the Colossian church to warrant a letter like this, which is basically a friendly uh, corrective uh, to them. And so in a nutshell, they as a church community were in ancient, what is now Turkey, on the west side of ancient Turkey, And they were taken in by what was in the air around them, prevailing ideologies of their culture, and they were being distracted away from finding their total fulfillment in Christ. And so there's a basic strategy that Paul's been using here to address the ideology that the Colossians were falling prey to. So instead of listing every little detail that was incorrect about this false worldview, Paul instead lists most of the details of the right worldview. Paul doesn't get into the weeds in this letter of the problem. He gets into the weeds of the solution. And so in a word, it's Jesus. But there are three perspectives, cosmic perspectives, on Jesus that Paul lays out over the course of this whole letter. There are these three. The position of Christ, our solidarity with Christ, and our life with Christ. So first, Paul in chapter 1 lays out the position of Christ. Who is Jesus? If he's going to be the solution, they best know who he is. The Colossians were getting distracted and sucked into an ideology that sought to appease local deities, local gods, for the sake of their practical day-to-day life. And so Paul gives them a picture of who Christ really is. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this portrait of Jesus that Paul paints in chapter 1. Starting in verse 15 through 20, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so Christ is both creator and redeemer of all things. This is the position of Christ. He is over every God that you can imagine. He is over every worldview that you can even think of. He is over that thing that you're struggling with. 
He is over it. So second, Paul doesn't just want them to know the position of Christ, but also their solidarity with Christ. They haven't realized both how bad they had it and how good they now have it in Christ. Look back at chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And this is when Paul is sort of getting into the problems that they're dealing with, the problems that they are embracing. He says in, chapter, uh, in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so we have the position of Christ over all things, creator of all things, redeemer of all things, and we have our solidarity with Christ. We are with him where he is. He's been raised. We've been raised with him. And so finally, we arrive now where we are today at chapters three, and then moving in, he'll move into chapter four in which Paul lays out a vision for their new life with Christ. Now he starts to get practical. How does this apply to my tomorrow? Now that they know where Christ is and where they are in him, they are prepared to live a real life with him. This is our focus for today. Christ in real life. In four verses, Paul uses the name of Christ four times. And he gives us four areas of our lives that can and should now be redefined by Christ. Jesus redefines first our vocation. Second, our priorities. Third, our identity. And fourth, our hope. But, before Paul dives into this redefined life with Christ, he provides an appropriate check before we start. Right there in verse 1, there's a big if. Before you can start and chart your trajectory and see what Jesus wants to do and be in your life, there's an if. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. If. You can't gloss over that. You can't skip over that. There are two elements that come before resurrection power with Christ. These are confession and faith. First, in order to be resurrected, you have to recognize that you're dead. 
Looking back at chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's a confession that has to take place before resurrection, and it's pretty simple. As to my spiritual health before God, I'm dead. I'm a sinner. I am in need of a Savior. You have to know. You have to confess that. You have to know and confess your need for it. But second, you have to place your trust and your faith in God's solution for it. It's not enough to know you're a sinner, to know you're broken, to know you have issues, to know you're messed up, to know you do bad things, that you're selfish, etc. Most people, if they're honest, will admit that and recognize that. And then do and pursue strategies to grow and to change. Confession is not enough. There's a trusting, a believing that needs to take place. If you're dead, you cannot resurrect yourself. Someone else has to step in. And in Christ, God stepped in. Faith is choosing to trust trust in the solution that he says works. You need to know how bad you had it. And choose to believe him when he says, okay, now, based on your confession, based on your faith, you're in Christ. Now you're clean. Now you're forgiven. You're loved. Although, of course, you're loved prior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But now you are a beloved child. And I will change you according to my power at work in you. So Paul encapsulates this this prior to resurrection power reality of confession and faith in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession and faith. Confession that I'm not the best Lord of my life. That's an important thing to know. Do you know that? So now that we've addressed the big if, we can move forward to the real life that Jesus has for those who have been raised with him. It doesn't stop at confession and faith. Jesus wants to go deeper with you. Deeper with us than we often realize. So uh, firstly, Jesus redefines our vocation and our priorities. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, 
not on things that are on earth. Paul starts with the practical. Seek the things that are above. The word seek is the same as in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which many of you know, which says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, and these things are, are practical things, daily needs, all these things will be given to you as well, it says. Seek is a word that means pursue or desire. So what is Paul saying here in verses 1 and 2? He is redefining the Colossians' vocation and priorities according to the newly inaugurated lordship of Christ over all things. He's saying, recognize that the whole of your existence is now under new ownership. So in your pursuits, in your vocation, in your passions, in your desires, realize that even those are under Jesus' jurisdiction. And Jesus clearly has the authority. Look where he is. It says, he is seated at the right hand of God. This is a position of incredible authority and honor. That God would welcome, God the Father would welcome someone else to sit on his throne. To sit with him in authority. And at first glance, if you read verses 1 and 2, it seems like he's saying, think heavenly thoughts and disregard your earthly situation. Don't worry about life on earth. Just worry about getting yourself and others into heaven. At first glance, you could, you could take that. But I want to argue that it's actually the opposite. The false teachers around this church were trying to get this church to go get away from the physical, away from the physical to the spiritual with all sorts of strategies and avenues and practices and experiences. Paul is saying, no, no, no. You are already raised with Christ. You're already raised with Christ. Now, allow that heavenly reality of where you already are to inform your actual earthly life. Why is he not saying, think heavenly thoughts, not don't get too messed up and messy with the physical world? Because the whole of chapter 3 is intensely vocational. It's intensely practical. Jesus cares deeply about what you're going to do tomorrow. He cares deeply about every person you will encounter this week. These first four verses set the stage and provide an introduction to a section that is concerned with the practical the physical realities of your life. Whatever you're going to do tomorrow, Jesus cares about it. 
So why would he start a section that is so concerned with your physical day-to-day life with an exhortation to put your head in the clouds? He doesn't. He's not. At the end of chapter 3, Paul gives a summary of what he's trying to get across here. In verses 23 and 24, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily with all your heart. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul is not saying disregard your earthly roles and responsibilities. He's saying reframe them according to the reality that you are serving Jesus through them. Whatever you're doing this week, you are serving Jesus through it. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. This has enormous implications for our jobs. or Whatever vocation you find yourself in, in your Monday to Friday, in your weekly rhythm right now, in this season. This means that as long as it is contributing to the God-glorifying flourishing of human beings, no job cannot be redeemed as sacred work for Christ. And I give that caveat because if you're working at Uncle Ike's pot shop, quit. Find something else. But as long as it is contributing to the flourishing of the society, of the people, of the human beings that God loves. It can be sacred work. It is sacred work. Work, I'm sorry to say, but I'm not sorry to say it. Work came before the fall. God gave Adam and Eve work to be done, to tend the garden. And it has been redeemed by Christ. Is it tainted by the fall? Absolutely. There's toil. It's rough. We call it a grind for a reason. But God gave it before the fall, and Christ redeemed it. And so in verse 2, Paul goes even deeper, from vocation to priorities. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. From seeking to setting your minds on. This was the word, this setting your mind on, is the word we saw constantly in the book of Philippians, where Paul said such things like, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So despite differences that we have in our callings, in our vocations, in our day-to-day, Paul calls for a singular focus for us. And for the Colossian church, he calls for a singular focus in their community. It's not just about serving Christ in what we do. It's about also serving him in what we're thinking about. You know, it's pretty easy to get caught up in checking the boxes at work. Isn't it? Without opening our eyes and watching for Jesus at work. 
preach it to yourself. That Jesus wants to show up at your job every day. And he does it through you. And as a community, when we have that collective mindset, when we are setting our minds on the things that are above where Christ is, that he is over all of these areas. He is over all of our jobs. He is over every calling that we have. We are acting as his body here in Seattle. I love that Paul doesn't stop there. You know, he doesn't just say, you know, do these things. Think about these things. Set your mind on these things. He goes even deeper. Yes, Jesus redefines our vocations and our priorities, but he also redefines our very identity and our hope. Our vocations and priorities are the external outworking of what's internal. And Jesus' jurisdiction isn't just external, it's internal too. And so first, Jesus redefines our vocation and priorities, but second, he redefines our identity and our hope. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so in case they had forgotten... Paul reminds them that their old life is dead. Their old self is dead. Elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says it like this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And at first glance, this reality sounds kind of like a bummer for identity formation. You know, some of us have a hard time forming our identity, knowing who we are in the world. And so to hear Paul just say, you're dead, it's kind of like, thanks, until you try to establish an identity. It's hard. You know, most of us have baggage with identity. Who are you, really? Are you who you relate to others as? A father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a mom, a friend, a coworker, a spouse? Are you what you do? An engineer? a business owner, a, a gig worker? Are you your struggle? An addict? Are you your sexuality? Your gender? Your race? Your political party? Many of us have wounds in at least one area, if not multiple areas of identity. And so what do we do? We pivot to finding more of our identity in another area. The beautiful thing about Jesus having both created us and redeemed us 
is that it makes total sense to allow him to define our identity. Do all those other categories get washed away when you become a Christian? We'll take a look at verse 11. It says, here, this is chapter 3, verse 11, it says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so do all these other categories that we often put our identity in get washed away here? The key to understanding verse 11 is that God doesn't love you because of your identity. No part of you earned your status with God. He doesn't love you because you're successful in your career, because you're successful in your relationships, because you're successful in crafting a unique identity that will stand the test of Facebook and TikTok. He loves you. Period. But you do remain who you are after being raised with Christ. This whole chapter, especially verses 18 through 24, make it clear that our distinct vocations, our distinct identities still exist and they matter. But when you're in Christ and your old self has died, Every category of identity gets a demotion. And then Jesus sets about to restore your identity. The self that he will help form in you is your true self. It's the truest, most genuine, and creative self you could ever be. He will tell you who you are. And for those of us who have a hard time knowing who we are, that's such good news. Paul says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden. This hiddenness has two aspects. You know, you can think of it like a cocoon. Think of a cocoon. You know, it's, it's kind of bland on the outside, but it's hard. It hides something beautiful that at some point will be revealed. And it provides safety. While a caterpillar is inside the cocoon, it is safe from predators. You know, it can get knocked. It can get rattled. But it is safe inside the cocoon. When your life is hidden with Christ in God... You are in the safest place you could ever imagine. When you stake your identity on Jesus, you are on solid ground. But he doesn't just redefine our present identity and create a safe place for us to dwell and to grow. He also redefines our future hope. The very existence of a cocoon means something beautiful is taking place, even though there is a waiting period. But what is hidden will eventually be revealed. The Apostle John puts it this way. And listen to these words as they were written, because they were written to you. He says, Beloved, 
We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so this hope that we have, it purifies us. How many of you thrive on having something to look forward to? How many of you, as you approach these gray, cold days, put something on your calendar that at least, at least that thing is happening? At least that trip is happening. When you've got something on your calendar that you're excited about, it changes your countenance. You know, recently I got some babysitting confirmed for a one-night getaway with my wife without kids for February. I might as well have been a different person from when the babysitting hadn't been confirmed to confirmed. I'm a whole new person. At least that's on the calendar. You guys, we have something on our calendar. Look how identity is tied directly to hope. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Paul says that if we define our identity in Jesus, if we make our life him, then on a real day in our future, we will share in his glory. In conclusion, the Christian hope isn't just spiritual. After all, the entire premise of our faith, of which the catechism will sort of walk us through it, the entire premise of this Christian faith rests on a physical resurrection that has actually happened in history was written down by eyewitnesses, was proclaimed and caught fire throughout the known world. And then elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that without this physical resurrection of Jesus, without it, we're toast. We're foolish. We're delusional. Jesus, raised physically, calls us to follow him in all aspects of our lives. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. Everything is under his jurisdiction. And he also offers us a physical hope. Not just spiritual ecstasy. Not, not just our spirit divorced from our body in, in sort of an ethereal place of endless bliss. No, a new physical body that he is preparing that will be like his. And so it's no wonder that with a physical resurrection of Jesus as our premise and a physical body from Jesus as our hope, 
that Jesus cares about your life in your physical body today. He isn't just Lord over your spirituality. He wants to be Lord over all of you. He wants to glorify himself through all of you. He wants all of you to flourish. So the Colossians, they were heavily concerned with the practical aspects of their lives. They just wanted a decent existence. But they were drawn to cheap alternatives. They were drawn to quick fixes. They were drawn to what everyone around them was doing. Paul combats this with the truth of Christ. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. Remember that. And allow that truth to transform how you clean your toilet this week. And any other menial or seemingly menial thing that's on your agenda, that's on your to-do list. He cares about it. And the awesome thing is that through his spirit, he will empower you to serve the Lord Christ well. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for each person here. I pray for each person here that this gospel, this simple gospel, Jesus plus nothing, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, would transform each person here. If there's anyone here who is getting tripped up with the big if, who has not confessed their need for you, who has not placed their faith in the one solution you have provided, I pray that you would, through whatever spirit-given prompting you want, draw them, woo them, show them, convince them of this truth, that Jesus is their only hope, that this world can offer alternatives. This world will offer hope, but it's not the kind of hope that you give. Because the hope that you give is unbreakable. It doesn't break in suffering. It doesn't break in injustice. It doesn't break through anything that the enemy or any other person or thing can throw at us. And for that, we praise you and we celebrate the gospel that you have provided. Help us as a church community to know how to walk in wisdom and in embodying this to this community and to this neighborhood, in our workplaces, in wherever we find ourselves this week. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill each person who has entrusted their lives to Jesus today. I pray for a fresh filling of your power in order to glorify you and to see you everywhere we go this week to see the, the value in what you've called us to in this season. I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.